Enterprise Management 360. Hello, my name is Bob Tarzi, a freelance IT industry analyst, and I will be moderating this EM360 podcast. This is the third of three podcasts looking at the history and future of endpoint security. In the first podcast, we looked at how we got to now and the shortfalls of traditional and so-called next-generation antivirus. The second podcast covered what's next for endpoint security, including alternative approaches that consider a broader range of indicators of compromise and frameworks that can help with this, such as the MITRE ATT&CK framework. In this, the third podcast, we will look at how to map endpoint security to a contemporary security strategy. To guide us through the complexities of endpoint security, I am pleased to be joined by Ian McShane, a Vice President and Endpoint Security Expert from security vendor Endgame. Ian is also a former analyst from the research firm Gartner. Ian, thank you for joining us on this podcast. I know you work for a vendor, but in general terms, how can the products capable of supporting this alternative approach to endpoint security be recognised? Yeah, I mean, I would say firstly, it's not alternative. I would say it's the right approach for the current threat landscape. But, but you're right in, in asking that question because the use of so many marketing buzzwords across the whole of IT security really does make it hard to see what's real and what's not. One of the biggest issues is that there's a lack of transparency from many vendors. And although that's starting to change slowly, mostly helped by things like MITRE's attack framework, we're actually struggling to see or struggling to communicate with organizations how products actually recognize and prevent threats. When really the best way to determine a product's fit is not necessarily looking at someone's website, not even necessarily looking at the results of one specific test. The best way to determine a product's fit and a product's improvement to an organization is to run through a pretty thorough proof of concept in their own environment using you know, typical attack scenarios. So, so, so when you talk about a lack of transparency, you mean in the old days we had antivirus, it was like a black box, and you just had to trust that it was doing its job. You're talking about a, a much more open approach to addressing security problems than that. Yeah, there has to be. I mean, there's a real lack of trust in information security anyway. We look at the nation state side of things. We look at the balkanization of endpoint security. You only have to look through the media for the last you know, year, maybe two years to see vendors that are based in specific countries losing trust from other nations too. So being in this industry and not being prepared to explain how you make decisions and how your product works is going to hamper you. This lack of transparency is is changing and for the better, for certainly for organizations that are investing in this market. Sure. So you're saying it doesn't really matter where the vendor comes from per se. It's the fact that it's understood the approach is taken and that increases trust because without that, then there's a lot of suspicion from all sides of the uh, political divide about what the other side's up to. And, and, and that's where this nation state thing comes in. So everybody wants to blame the Chinese for this and that, but the Chinese blame the Americans and the Americans are not beyond reproach as we, we know they stand accused of having used so-called nation state attack techniques as, as well. So let's not get into that, but uh, transparency helps you rise above all that. You talked about doing trials in, in, in the user's actual environment, doing a proof of concept, that sounds to me like simulating attacks. Now, that sounds complicated. How do you go about that? Yeah, I mean, it is complicated. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's harder to do it right than it is to do it wrong, for sure. 
the way many organizations test out a new security product, whether it's endpoint, whether it's network, whether it's firewall, is usually pretty simple and usually, unfortunately, pretty irrelevant in that they'll take some malware samples that they've either got from a vendor or maybe they'll grab some samples from VirusTotal and they'll basically dump them on the desktop of a machine and see if a security control detects whether they're good or bad. Of course, it's a valid test, right? It's looking to see if this, in this case, endpoint security is able to detect a bad file, but that's not really a very realistic way of testing things. It is very cheap. When you look at things like red teaming, when you look at penetration testing, that's probably outside of the reach of many organizations, certainly in terms of skills, maybe in terms of budget, but some vendors are starting to do things to try and help, right? Some organizations like Red Canary, like Uber, the rideshare company, and of course, my company Endgame, we're starting to try and make it easier for, should we say, air quotes, normal organizations to be able to test this. We're making adversary automation tools freely available. So if you can run some scripts in your environment, in your test network, maybe, then you can start to emulate the behaviors that an attacker will take. Let's look at that in a bit more detail at the moment. Can you just explain those two terms you use, uh, red teaming and penetration testing? Yeah, I mean, there's there's these concepts of um, red teaming, blue teaming, and, and even purple teaming, and all kinds of colors um, to describe different things. The most well-known of them is probably red teaming, which means that you have a team of employees, maybe, or maybe it's outsourced to someone else that's gonna spend a day trying to attack, trying to breach your network. The corresponding team on the defending side is usually called the blue team. Uh, and you know they're, they're both parts of the overall penetration testing. Okay, so basically good is in bad is, and, 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 uh, and they're, they're trying to do this thing, pen, penetration testing, or sometimes called pen testing, which is people might call them white hats, or um, they might call them um, ethical hackers, but they're basically trying to prove whether a, a network is vulnerable or Yes, I'd call it like a live fire exercise. I mean, the important thing to note is that with with penetration testing and and red teaming, whether they're internal or external organizations doing the work, they've always already got permission to do it first. So it's not quite like a a white hat hacker that's looking for vulnerability somewhere. This is part of a security strategy that organizations ideally should be doing regularly to continually test their, their controls and their defenses. And then when the real attackers turn up, you're much better prepared to deal with it because you've been through uh, test scenarios before. You, you said one thing that surprised me just then. You, you listed a, a number of vendors, including your own company, Endgame, but you mentioned Uber, the taxi company in, in, in that list. What, what is it they're doing? Yeah, they've been sourced their um, adversary toolkit uh, sometime last year, maybe early, early 2018. Basically made their network testing, their penetration testing tools available for, for anyone to use and to modify and share in an open source way okay good for them all right so we've looked into these uh, techniques red teaming and penetration testing and also we talked about automated breach and attack simulation how do these techniques align with frameworks we looked at in detail in the second podcast in this series frameworks such as the mitre attack framework how did these simulated attack techniques fit in with a framework like that yeah, I mean, we touched on it in the last one. It gives us a common way to discuss or describe the activities that the red team's taking. So we can start to see and start to map their techniques or their tools to various elements of that matrix. So if they were to try and gain access to the password database in Windows, which is LSAS, if they start to use something like Mimikatz, you know, that would be a detection that would fall under the privilege escalation bucket. 
Now there's a number of different ways to get that privilege escalation stuff. So you can start to use that matrix to score the success of a, a penetration test in a common language. You can start to understand where we were strong and where we weren't strong. And that will help you identify maybe what additional controls you can deploy to shore up those gaps. So one can imagine the, the first penetration test, lots of uh, compromises being possible, uh, a poor score under the MITRE attack framework. So you go back, you make the improvements, you have a, a later penetration test and the score gets better and better. And when a real attack turns up, then your effective score against the real attack is, is higher than it might otherwise have been. It could be abstracted in that way. I think the, the biggest way to look at it is understanding where they are today, right? being able to have a benchmark. But one of the, the biggest concerns I have heard probably for a decade from you know, information security leaders is that they don't have a good way to track what they're doing, what their investments actually do. And even worse than that, they don't know where to start looking to make this benchmark. One of the things I always used to say to, to clients when I was at Gartner was, you know, figure out a metric that works so that you know whether that investments you're making are changing things for the better, whether that is simply counting the number of endpoints that you've had to re-image on a month or yearly basis due to something like AV, due to something like a compromise, and make sure that that number is coming down every time you invest in it, in something. So having a, a metric or having a way to benchmark your organization's security posture is really important. And that's really what organizations should be using the attack framework for, is figure out today, where do we have coverage and figure out where are the gaps and then try and understand or try and use that framework to prioritize spending in the right columns, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, it does. And, and, and I guess what that helps you achieve is because it, it's all well and good to go and run these tests gauge the level of security, say it's not good enough, improve it. But what you have to do is to keep tracking that over time and making sure the standards are maintained and improved continuously. And we all yeah. we, we all know it's all too easy for an organization to say, oh, our security is not very good. Let's have a review. Oh, that's better. And then they go off and work on other things and forget about it. So how do you make sure that, you know, that's a continuous process over time? Yeah, that's a great way of describing it. Everything about security has to be a continuous process. This is not a one-time activity. Nothing in security is a one-time activity anymore, right? There's no such thing as set and forget. And I think this is kind of a hangover from maybe a decade ago where the focus for almost every information security product was reducing the administrative overhead, reducing the amount of work you needed to do. You know, install this, configure it, and then leave it, and it's just going to protect you. Unfortunately, that's not the case anymore. There is a level of ongoing work that has to be done okay now in the second podcast we talked about and you mentioned some more of them in this one uh, you know a number of different vendors that have started to use frameworks like mitre attack that's great because it's given a common language regardless of what the language is for communication between vendors and the organizations they're trying to protect and some of the service companies that uh, provide protections are there other ways of evaluating the efficacy of various vendors' products and services with regard to the level of protection they're offering their customers? Yeah, that's a great distinction. The attack framework or the attack matrix from MITRE is focused on post-breach, right? So 
that's only useful when you're thinking about how you respond, how you detect to ongoing attacks in your environment. That doesn't talk anything really about how you prevent them or how strong a organization's prevention capability is. So we need to look at other vendors or other processes to achieve that, right? There's third party testing, such as those by NSS labs. There's vendors like AV Comparatives or avtest.org. And they provide the, the testing of that upfront blocking. How much of the initial compromise attempt are organizations able to protect themselves against? So in a way, we come full circle there because um, at the start, we talked about some of the weaknesses of AV, but the very fact that you're going to test it suggests that it is still an underlying component of an overall protection of a customer's environment. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of a great metaphor for information security in general, right? It's a whole cyclical thing. Prevention has to feed into detection and response, and then anything you detect needs to feed into your protection capabilities so that you don't have to keep dealing with the same incident over and over again. So it's very, very important to have a cohesive prevention, detection, and response product. As we go back to figuring out whether something is fit for purpose or not through that third-party testing, it's important to know that you know the numbers on a score sheet or the numbers on a website really aren't everything. They're a great indication of whether a product is fit for service. They can be of immense help cutting through the noise of hundreds of vendors all trying to say the same thing and help you as an organization really shortlist the products that will provide you additional uh, capabilities uh, as it pertains to information security. But the most important thing is really understanding how you can use that product in your environment. There's no point investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in bleeding edge technology that you do not have the staff to use or do not have the skills to use properly. So there has to be an element of what's right for you in your organization too. Okay. Yeah. So that's great. Thanks very much. Um, So one final question, when it comes to the crunch, when it comes to decision time, you know, we've talked about a lot of ideas and concepts in these three podcasts, but when it comes to the crunch, when it comes to putting in place endpoint security, can you summarize the key evaluation criteria that uh, listeners to these three podcasts should consider when they go back and review what they've got now and where they should be in the future? Yeah, number one, the selection should be based on the capabilities that vendor brings to you as an organization um, as much as the workflow fit for a given organization. So you take into account the size and the experience of your security team. You take into account the complexity of the security product and the capabilities and controls that are needed beyond what you have in place today. So the very first step really is to audit what you have today and then figure out where you need to invest to improve your security strategy. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much to Ian McShane of Endgame for providing this insight into mapping endpoint security to a contemporary security strategy. And thank you for listening to this EM360 podcast. The first and second podcasts in this series covering the history and future of endpoint security are also available on the EM360 website. Thank you. For more podcasts like this, head to em360tech.com.